Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2016 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. The daughter of Chilean revolutionaries and subsequently a political activist herself, Carmen Aguirre now lives in Canada, where she is an actor, playwright and writer. She's the author of two memoirs, Something Fierce, Memoirs of a Revolutionary Daughter, and the recently published Mexican Hooker No. 1. In this session, she speaks with Dan Salmon about a life of change and challenge. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome. Um, I'm Dan Salmon, and I'd like to welcome you here today to a session described last night as a sparkling session with Carmen Aguirre. That's a tall order for 10 a.m., but we're going to do our best, and uh, you know we hope we can step up to that challenge. You'll all have a chance to sparkle at the end of the session as we're going to leave 10 to 15 minutes for Q&A, so, so hold on to those questions. Carmen Aguirre is an author, actor, and celebrated playwright. She's written or co-written well over 20 plays, a number that seems to go up each time I Google you. Yes. <laughs> so there's a, I'm going to Google at the end and see if that's gone up again. She was born in Chile to parents who supported President Allende and had to flee the country following Allende's overthrow by General Pinochet. Canada accepted them as political refugees, but as we'll discuss over the next hour, her relationship with Chile was far from over. If we feel that writers should follow the adage of write what you know, uh, Carmen really has, and she's written so well that I feel like a documentary editor who's spent three months in a dark edit suite telling people's story, and he comes out to meet them for the first time and doesn't understand why they don't know him as well as he knows them. <laughs> so I feel in a, in a position of disadvantage here. Um, but for, and for all the heartbreaking seriousness of, of Carmen's subject matter, her books, Something Fierce, Memoirs of, Revo of a Revolutionary Daughter, and Mexican hooker number one, and my other roles since the revolution, are astonishing in their honesty, generosity, and humor. Their memoir, but as those of you who were here last night will know, their memoir written by an author with a deep understanding of storytelling. Her books overlap and intertwine, so we're going to talk about both of them today. They take us between childhood and adulthood, trauma, tears, and laughter. We're going to start with her first book, Something Fierce, which tells the story of a teenage girl battling to find her identity as history, politics, her parents take her from home and into the life of a revolutionary fighter. My mother used to trick me into reading books by reading the first couple of pages and then leaving them hanging. Carmen's going to start by reading a couple of pages of her first book, and you're all going to have to go out and buy it afterwards. Yes, that's the point. Can anybody hear me? Okay, there we go. Well, thank you. That's an amazing introduction. Thank you very much. And thank you, everybody, for coming out to see a complete stranger and unknown writer in New Zealand. I'm shocked that, that people would come out to see this, so thank you. Um, yes, I'm going to read the first two pages of Something Fierce. As my mother bit into her Big Mac, her glasses caught the reflection of a purple neon light somewhere behind me. Barry White's Love's Theme, my favorite song, blasted from the loudspeaker. Mommy looked hilarious in her new aqua eyeshadow. Her plucked eyebrows gave her a surprised expression. 
Then there was her frosted pink lipstick, which was smeared across her chin now, and the unfamiliar scent of Charlie. I'd helped her choose that perfume. The picture on the box showed one of Charlie's angels doing the splits in midair, wearing a white pantsuit and platform shoes. In dressing for our trip that morning, my mother had followed her lead, though not the splits part, because she was four foot ten and round. Now, here we were in a food court at Los Angeles International Airport, which my mother referred to as LAX. She and I and my sister, Ale, had walked for ages through the terminal, looking for our gate, and the whole time she'd rubbed the palms of her hands into the small of her back, muttering, firing squad to the woman hater who invented heels. It was June 1979, and the day before in Vancouver, Mummy had been a hippie. She'd been a hippie for as long as I'd been her daughter, in fact, which was 11 years now. That's why Ali and I had giggled when we saw her this morning, and why we'd been shocked a few weeks earlier when Mummy announced we were going to a mall. She'd tried on most of the inventory at Susie Cream Cheese before settling on the white polyester pantsuit and some matching platforms at Aggie's. She was usually dressed in frayed jeans with patches on the ass and a pair of old clogs. But this was a special occasion, requiring a new wardrobe to go with it, my mother had explained. We'd found her in the kitchen that morning, blowing on her toenails, which were wet with red polish, humming Victor Jara's famous song, The Right to Live in Peace. Our passports were laid out like a fan on the table. The three of us hadn't looked back as we left our basement suite. Canada had taken us in after the coup in Chile five years earlier, but my mother had made it clear from day one that the refugee thing in the imperialist north was not for us. So our suitcases had been packed again, and our posters of Ho Chi Minh, Salvador Allende, and Tupac Amaru taken down and given away. Rulo drove us to the airport in my mother's orange VW bug, and Mummy had several attacks of the giggles along the way because he'd only just learned to drive. Clutch, Rulo, clutch, you idiot, she yelled. I'd never seen Rulo so excited, and I knew it was because he'd get to keep the car from that day on. This part of the imperialist north L-A-X, was very different from anything I'd seen so far. In Vancouver, we and the few dozen other Chilean families had been the only Latinos. That city, where you could buy tropical fruit in the dead of winter, was full of white people who kept their bodies and faces perfectly still when they talked. At LAX, we were surrounded by the sound of Mexican Spanish, and there were black people everywhere. I could see palm trees and turquoise sky just beyond the glass walls of the airport. 
The lady who'd sold me a cheeseburger with no patty, I'd been a strict vegetarian since I was eight, had touched my cheek and spoken to me in Spanish. She'd recognized herself in me, and somehow I understood that. For the first time in five years, I thought maybe I belonged somewhere, but it couldn't possibly be here because the North was the forbidden place of belonging. I'll just stop there. Those are the first two pages. <laughs> the, the reason I'd suggested the opening was it sort of captured all the, all the tensions of your story, the, the West, the South, the politics, consumerism, socialism, and it hooks us in, doesn't it? It, it leaves us wanting to, to hear more. So, you know, one, one thing that really struck me was you were 11 years old then. You know, you now have a, a nine-year-old daughter. How much did you understand at the time, do you think, of where you were going and what you were doing? Well, I understood that... Um we were going, uh, well, okay, so I'm, I don't want to give away what happens in the next couple of pages. So, um, <laughs> I understood that we were going to fight for a cause that was very important. And I understood that because um, even though I was only five years old on the day of the coup in Chile, um, I remembered it perfectly. It was etched into my brain. And I actually listened, along with my parents, to Salvador Allende's last speech from the presidential palace as it was being bombed uh, right before he was murdered. And, um, you know, I listened to it live with my parents who were sobbing through it. And his words um, continue to be the most powerful words I have ever heard in my entire life. Um, and one of the things that he said in that final speech that I heard very clearly, even though I was only five, was, uh, it's not over. Um, fight for a better Chile. Fight for a free Chile. And the great avenues of this country will open once again where the free man will walk. And I took that as a call to me, um, to the youth of Chile, to the children of Chile, uh, to fight for that. So I knew even at the age of five, that I was going to do that, come hell or high water, and that I was going to go back and do that. So when my parents decided to go back and do that and join the underground when I was 11, um, it made perfect sense for me. Yeah. The, the back of something fierce has says, what happens if your mother gives herself and you, her child, up to the cause of revolution? Can you forgive her? Did, did you, I assume you didn't write the blurb, but do you have an answer for that? It says the answer's in the book, but I don't know that it fully is. Yes. Um, I did forgive her. Uh, it took a long time to forgive her because um, when you understand as a child, well, I, really as a child, um, I think I lost my parents on the day of the coup because on the day of the coup, it became clear to me that... Uh, that was more important to you know, bring democracy and socialism back to Chile and to pick up where Agenda Socialist experiment left off was more important than raising their daughters. Um, so it took me, I guess I was about 30 when I started really, really, really on the journey of forgiving <laughs> my mother for uh, not putting me first. 
And once I came out the other end, which is when I wrote the book, um, uh, all I could feel and continue to feel uh, for her and for my parents was compassion and gratitude because I actually am very, very happy about the childhood that I had and the youth that I had. I, I think that if we had stayed in Canada, I would have been bored to tears and uh, would have become uh, an unconscious consumer. I mean, I'm saying really bad things about Canada right now, but uh, you know what I'm trying to say. Maybe an apathetic kind of youth, which, which um, I'm glad I didn't become that. One, one of the things you talk about in the book is that you, you gave an oath when you joined the resistance never to talk about it, and now we've got a book, so thank you for, for talking about it. But can you, can you talk us through that process of making a big promise like that when you're mm -hmm. very young? Yes, I was 18 years old when I joined the Chilean resistance myself as a militant, and uh, what that meant is that I had to go from um, Vancouver to Lima, Peru, which was the international headquarters of the Chilean resistance. Um, so just to give a tiny bit of backstory, the Chilean resistance was completely destroyed by Pinochet between 1973 and 1976. So when I say destroyed, I mean uh, through murder, torture, disappearance, imprisonment, and exile. So when we were all in exile, um, the Chilean resistance made a call from Cuba and Mexico City, um, which, where, which is where a lot of the exiles had gone, uh, and basically said, uh, it's time to return and to join the resistance and uh, fight. So um, that's when we first went back in 1979, but I was only 11, so I couldn't join. So I had to wait till I was 18. So I went back uh, when I was 18 with the... Um, desire uh, in Lima that I was praying that they would send me to Santiago to live in a shanty town so that I could be an urban guerrilla. That's, that's what I wanted to do. Uh, but they told me in Lima that um, they had too many people doing that and that I wasn't allowed to do that and that I had to go to Argentina to set up a safe house for resistance members going in and out of Chile and that I had to learn how to fly a plane um, so that uh, I could go into Chile uh, illegally, of course, on this plane carrying people and goods. So I was like, shit. <laughs> That's too bad. Um, but I was there and I couldn't say no, and, the, and I had taken the oath, right? And the oath said that from that moment on, I would always follow orders. Uh, I would never question these orders. Um, that I would never speak about this to anybody, ever. And uh, most terrifyingly, that if um, I was to be captured, which was a very high possibility because people doing border work usually live about two years. That's kind of like the maximum that you'll live. That I would not speak under torture. And that if I were to speak under torture in the first 24 hours, I would be executed by the leadership of the resistance. So that led me uh, into a life of absolute terror and paranoia. <laughs> and uh, I was followed by the secret police, and you know, I was 20 pounds underweight, I couldn't eat, etc. Uh, luckily, I was never caught. I don't think I would be sitting here if I had been caught. Um, but um, yeah, it, it wasn't until many years later that I thought, well, somebody has to write this shit down because people are dying all around me. Uh, a lot of people who were in the resistance died quite young of, of fatal diseases due to chronic terror and stress and trauma. And um, as all these people that I know started to die around me, 
um, I thought, well, this, these people have such incredible stories that nobody knows about. So somebody has to write this stuff down. And I thought it was an interesting thing to write down for those reasons, but also because there's a lot written uh, uh, about revolutions that triumph, and this one did not. We lost colossally. It was a complete disaster. Most of us were killed and um, imprisoned, um, broken. We were um, infiltrated by the secret police. We lost, right? So again, I thought that was also an interesting story to tell. One of, one of the casualties, I think, of, of that sort of a, a situation is, is, is childhood. But one of the joyful things about reading your book is, is finding the, the child in there and the teenage in there and the, the romances and, and so on. And do you, do you think that you were shortchanged on childhood or did, like the book presents, you manage to find those joyful things in there as well? No, I found so many joyful things. Now, you, you know, something we do have to understand, I don't, I'm not from New Zealand, so I have no clue what it's like here, so I won't speak about New Zealand, but certainly in, in comparison to Canada, um, I would say that in South America, when you're, a, when you're a child, you are considered a citizen of the world, and you have many rights and you have many responsibilities. So it, it is kind of mind-boggling to a mainstream Canadian, for example, right, that... Um, in Chile, even now, as we speak, a bunch of 12-year-olds, I'm not exaggerating, a bunch of 12-year-olds can shut down the entire country. And they do. You know, 200,000 of them will take to the streets uh, demanding educational reform, and they will stand in front of the presidential palace, and they're 12, and the leader's 14, um, and they know exactly what they're doing there. Nobody's forcing them, or nobody's puppet. Uh, they have a very clear political analysis of what they're doing. They, have, they know exactly what they want, and they will shut down a country. So I was very lucky to go back to South America when I was 11 and live in Bolivia and in Argentina uh, and to go to school in that situation, right, where uh, my classmates and my uh, neighborhood mates, uh, they knew um, everything, and they also knew how to have a good time. <laughs> And the thing about living under dictatorships, because we lived under extremely right-wing dictatorships in Bolivia and in Argentina, you know, where there's curfews, uh, you literally have no clue what's going to happen next, is that you learn how to live in the moment. You really, really do. And, and your, your adults through that time came and went. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't a consistency of one person. You were switching between adults you were leaning on. Can you, can you tell us a bit about that and your relationship with, with Bob and your grandmother? And yes, right. So Bob, um, who I dedicate the book to, was my stepfather. He was this white Canadian guy, a working class guy from Vancouver, who uh, it was actually thanks to him that Canada opened its doors to Chilean refugees. So he was living in, he was quite young, like 23, 24, living in Chile, as many foreigners were during the Allende government, because Presumably, I don't think this is true, but apparently it was the first uh, democratically elected Marxist government in the history of the world, Allende was. And so many people from all over the world went to live there because they wanted to see what that experiment looked like and see if they could figure out a way to have that happen in their own country. Bob was one of the people who did that from Canada. 
the coup happens and uh, the first people, aside from the working class, of course, to be arrested are the foreigners. So Bob was arrested almost immediately after the coup and put in a concentration camp, which was the National Stadium, which had been turned into a concentration camp. And he was about to be executed there. Um, and the only reason he wasn't is because the cultural attaché at the Canadian Embassy, who was a fellow hippie, um, took it upon himself to find out who the Canadians were that were in, being held in concentration camps. The ambassador wanted them to be executed uh, because Canada had declared itself in favor of the coup. Um, this was under Pierre Trudeau. Uh, and uh, thanks to this cultural attaché who took it upon himself to figure out who the Canadians were that were being held in concentration camps, Bob was saved. And then the cultural attaché was blacklisted for, uh, as a diplomat for the rest of his career. That was the end of his career. Bob comes to Canada, goes to Canada, and does a caravan across Canada with his friends and goes and camps out on Parliament Hill in, in Ottawa and uh, refuses to move until the Canadian government opens its doors to Chilean refugees. So it was thanks to him that the doors were open to us. Um, and uh, then, I'm trying to make a long story short, I'm not being very successful. Um, when we arrived in Vancouver, him and my mother got together. So my parents split up, him and my mother got together. He joined the Chilean resistance because it was an internationalist movement. There were people from all over the world in the Chilean resistance. And they're the ones that took my sister and I back. And Bob and I became very, very, very close. I can't remember which book it's in, but he's the only adult who's allowed to come up to your treehouse, is that right? That's right. Hey, yes. Bob, Bob sort of um, <laughs> broke my thesis, really. I, I had this idea, having read the books, that, that the first book was about your relationship with, with, with women and with the females in your family, and the second book is about your relationship with men. But, um, but Bob's in the first book, of course, and, and yeah. he stands out. But it, it does... The, Something you talked about last night and something you referred to here is how you learnt not to trust situations and how to look for untrustworthy people. But, but you know, Bob is one of those people you, you trust in the first book. I mean, how important are those people in the way you tell that story? The people that the, I trust. The adults who you find, you know, sort of a safety and, and trust in. Because a lot uh -huh. of the adults... In, in something fierce are uh, so preoccupied that, that they're, not, they're not a safe place, but they're a trustworthy place, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, they saved my life, of course, right? Like my grandmother, of course, was a very safe place. My grandmother who lived in, uh, in Chile the entire time and I would go and see her and who I later, later found out was also in the resistance. Um, uh, yeah, she was, she was up until my son... Actually, you, I think you mistakenly said daughter, but it's a son. That son I have. I'm sorry. A, no, no, it's okay. <laughs> Up until my son, she's the person I have loved the most in my life. And it was thanks to her being such a safe person when we were in such a dangerous, dangerous situation. And yeah. so, so the... I don't want to get ahead and talk about the second book, but there's this sort of feeling through your, this first book that you're, that you're looking, for a, looking for home and you move to Canada, and that's sort of home, but it's not home, because Chile's home, and so you head down to Chile, but you're not quite in Chile, you're just over the border. 
And can you, can you sort of, did you feel like you were searching for something when you were little, searching for a place where you could just go, oh, I'm here? Yeah, the search was always about going back to Chile because, I mean, the, di the difference between a refugee and an immigrant, of course, is that an immigrant is all about going to a new land to reinvent themselves, whereas a refugee is all about the triumphant return. So when we arrived in Canada, it was made very, very abundantly clear to us by all the adults, uh, you will uh, not get used to it here. Do not grow roots here, kids, because we are going back as soon as possible. What that meant in, the practic in practical terms is that we literally kept our suitcases at the foot of our bed for 10 years, um, waiting to go back, waiting to go back, waiting to go back. And every night, the adults would discuss it. Okay, how do we go back? How do we go back? How do we go back? Uh, everybody was blacklisted. Nobody was allowed to go back. Um, that meant that if you went back, you'd be killed on the spot. Well, if you were lucky, you'd be killed on the spot, right? You wouldn't be killed on the spot. You'd be tortured to death. Um, but, um, and some of them were, some of them did go back and they just said, I don't give a shit, I'm going back. And were picked up at the airport and disposed of. Um, so for me, it was always about going back, going back to Chile. That was, that was always the plan ever since I was a kid. That was drilled into me. And even now when I go back there and kind of like, you were not looked... You are, it, it, people do not look well upon you in Chile if you were raised in exile. You're basically a piece of shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> in spite of that, <laughs> when I do go back there, like the second I land there, there is no feeling like it. You know, that first breath, like, wow, I'm here, and to look around and to see people who look like me is incredible. There's no feeling like it. Yeah. How, how do you feel now when you get off the plane in Vancouver heading back from elsewhere? Yeah, yeah I do feel like I'm also going home. It took me a very long time to feel that way. Um, but I do feel like I'm going home. So I do feel like Vancouver is definitely my home as well, especially since my son is from there. Yeah. Of course, both, both, both countries and, and both books take us into deeply traumatic events in your mm -hmm. life. I wonder if we should... Going Switch to the, to the second book the now. Super, super we're, traumatic event. <laughs> we, we have a clever plan where we're going to read the first two pages of both books, so you have to go out and buy them both. Yes. Um, so I'm going to hand over to okay. Carmen now to read the first couple of pages yes. of the so second this book. Yes, from the second book. The second book is dedicated to my parents. It all went down in the church basement on 49th Avenue, South Vancouver, after the voice teacher instructed me to drop my back ribs. It had been a month since I'd started theater school and learned the importance of that particular set of bones, and maybe a week since I'd begun trying to grasp the concept of succumbing to the floor. As I lay there, I imagined carrying my ribs in a bag, upturning the contents. Let your hip sockets go, she intoned, which made sense, this being a church and all. Fingers placed on my solar plexus, she instructed me to exhale. Hip sockets. Before Labor Day, I'd never heard the term and envisioned electrical sockets whenever it came up, numerous times a day. Drop, let go, drop, let go, drop, let go, I repeated to myself, 
reaching for breath over and over again, pushing my back down, willing the electrons coursing through my body to somehow plug or unplug into the alleged sockets. I knew I was doing it all wrong. You weren't supposed to push the breath, you were supposed to let it be. The Beatles song popped into my mind. Focus, you idiot, I thought. I was 22 years old. This was voice class 101. I had three years to go, and I planned on acing theater school, landing on the honor roll like I had in high school. My classmate sat cross-legged in a circle around me. The sacrificial lamb splayed belly up. The instructions continued. Take a risk. Take a risk. I had taken many risks in my life thus far, most notably while being in the Chilean resistance a mere 18 months earlier, but I was to take another kind of risk and I had no way to measure, weigh, or determine what it looked like. Deaf, dumb, and blind, I groped my way through the forest, grasping for a new definition of a concept so familiar to me in another hemisphere south of the equator, a world where the constellations were different and spring had just begun. What is the worst thing that can happen if you just let go, she asked. I knew the right answer. Nothing. Because the floor is there to catch you. The floor as open arms not as dispenser of bruises, breaker of bones. My hip sockets gripped instead of releasing. They clung to my pelvic bone and I started to shake, a leaf at the mercy of an electrical storm. My body leapt up, hit by a bolt of lightning and landed back down again. I wondered if my hair had gone wild like Medusa's. Keeping my eyes shut, I surrendered to the surge, battered white flag flapping in the air, completely pathetic, out of control. Right. That's what was required. Loss of control. Right. That's the end of page two. <laughs> <laughs> Um, tell, tell us what you were trying to let go of there. Oh, what I was trying to let go of? Yeah. Uh, uh, super violent, like, I mean, all rapes are violent, of course, but like extremely violent childhood rape at gunpoint. Uh, I was raped as a child at gunpoint by Canada's most notorious serial child rapist, who's referred to as the paper bag rapist because he would cover his victim's heads with a paper bag or with um, an item of our own clothing so we could never see him. And by his own admission, he raped hundreds of children um, be uh, between 1978 and 1985, which is when he was caught. He attacked me in 1981. Um, and uh, police files have about 180 cases. Um, so anyway, that's what I was remembering. Um, in, the, in, those, in those first couple of pages. And so the, the, there's, the book 
follows your your journey of being able to let go of that and at the same time being able to let go of of the events of the first book mm-hmm. you know and there there are these sort of multiple trauma and and one thing that really struck me reading that having having worked with actors and and done acting courses and so on is is how potentially how dangerous those environments can be because you're not there with trained counselors or mm-hmm. or mental health professionals you've got you've got acting teachers there mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I went to a superb conservatory. It's one of the top three acting conservatories in Canada. And so this, you know, the first, um, the first part of chapter one describes that voice class in which I completely relive that rape. And it is at that moment that my mentors take me aside and say to me, uh, you will not get through this program unless you get some serious therapy because you have PTSD. It's very obvious to us. Uh, I never told them about the PTSD regarding living in a state of chronic terror when I was in the resistance because of the oath that I took. Um, So I wasn't allowed to. So I just let them think it was all about this rape. Um, But um, they made themselves very clear. And um, they they also, which is, this is tracked in the book, as you know, they also made it very clear the importance of dealing with any trauma if you are going to be a Shakespearean actor, which is what I trained to be, a Shakespearean actor, because you are the instrument when you are an actor, right? It is your body that you are using, it is your voice, it is your emotional well. And if you are blocked, um, well, then you can't do the work. Um, So it is actually thanks to them that I got therapy, intense, intense therapy, and a lot of therapy. I don't know that I would have if I hadn't gone to theater school. You know, a lot of my comrades who, um, who were in the resistance, who are very close friends of mine in Canada, uh, have never gotten therapy and are now quite ill. Um, so, yeah, I, I actually thank my theater school for pretty much forcing me to, to, to get help. There's, there's a lot of talk of therapy in the book and a lot of healing um, that you go through in, in different ways. Was, was the book a, a continuation of that, or do you feel that you'd, you'd sorted stuff before you wrote, it, wrote the book and then decided to share the experience? Oh, I'm a very firm believer that if you are writing for personal catharsis, you're wanking. <laughs> you should never, ever call that a book. Just keep it in your drawer. And, uh, yeah, I do not write for personal catharsis. I write for universal experience. And, and I, yeah. can, I can support that, having read both books. You know, both books are so beautifully crafted that in, that in spite of, of the almost unbearable events in, in the second book, you still manage to deliver us this, this sort of gripping read that peels layers off your story so cleverly that, that you can't put it down. But at the same time, you intersperse the, the sadness with humour. And, you know, and one, one event that has really stuck with me is there was, a, there was a teenage boy you had a giant crush on when you're in a, in a flashback in the book when you're younger and he finally lets you ride his bike and tell us what happens. Oh, God. Oh, that one. <laughs> I mean, there's so many. Sorry to put you on the spot with this one. <laughs> No, I didn't know which one you meant. <laughs> yeah, that was my first love. 
Yeah. yeah. So the first time I fell in love, I was four years old, and um, no, it's true. <laughs> and he was 14, and uh, yeah, it was a sad situation. Uh, impossible love, and my aunt, my great aunt, um, who was a fascist. I truly mean she was a fascist. She had given me this um, pink dress. Um, with these little shoes, and I was only allowed to wear them for a special occasion. So they were put away. And then one day I'm looking out the window, and I saw him. And he, was, he had a bike, and he was teaching all the neighborhood kids how to ride it, and it was the first bike in the neighborhood. And I just went, well, this is a special occasion, obviously. <laughs> so I put on the dress, and uh, you know, it came with these frilly underwear. I was four, right? With these white shoes, and I went out... Uh, to declare my love to him, which is a very South American thing to do. Like, you, you, there's a protocol that you have to follow, right? Usually it's the boy, right? But, <laughs> but my mother uh, has always been a radical feminist, so I, I, I knew it was okay for the girl to do it. Uh, and basically the declaration has to literally be, I am hi, I, declare, I am declaring myself to you. I love you. So I went out to, to say that to him, but unfortunately, I was so nervous that I shit my pants. <laughs> <laughs> so I had, like, you know, diarrhea running down my legs. <laughs> so that was my first declaration of love. <laughs> Sorry to make you tell and that then, story. <laughs> and then, then I decided that he was in love with me. I mean, I was four. I was delusional, of course. But um, um, <laughs> because, well, actually, it was a year later when the coup happened. And uh, my parents were on the most wanted list. And it, that's a very long story. But anyway, they weren't home. But, you know, they were always hiding. Um, and my sister and I were home, and the military raided our house, and it was a horrific, horrific, horrific day. Um, and they conducted a firing squad with my sister and I. She was four, I was five. And it was a mock firing squad. So they, so they kept putting us up against the wall and lifting their rifles and counting to 10, about to kill us, and then they would start laughing until finally this boy and everybody in the neighborhood had locked themselves in, the, in their houses and, you know, were living in a state of terror. Meanwhile, my best friend's uh, father and brother were being arrested across the way, and I was watching them be arrested and hooded and thrown into the, backs, uh, into the back of a jeep. Um, and then he came out, this boy, who was, four, I guess he would have been 15 at that point, he came running out to save us. A uh, very brave, 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 brave boy. And uh, he had the shit kicked out of him. I thought they had murdered him, but he didn't live. Um, but I took that to mean that he was in love with me. <laughs> yeah. So that's the end of that first love story. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, a, you know, it, it's a book that is about the worst of, of men. Of men? Of men oh, in, uh -huh. in, in the book. And, and the best of... Of men too, and there's mm -hmm. a there's sort of a generosity and a, and and a love there. Can you know? Were you consciously, or, or am I just being a solipsistic male, consciously <laughs> writing a book about men and your relationship with them? Well, I suppose yes, because um, the as you know, the spine of the book, the second book, is the rape and its aftermath, right? And uh, as you know from reading the book, the aftermath goes on forever. 
because, you know, to make a long story short, everybody, I end up meeting the rapist face to face and having a five hour meeting with him 33 years after the rape. But there's a whole lead up to that, right? And, and some of my closest friends are fellow victims of his who I met at the parole hearings. Um, and when I go and meet this man face to face, he's in jail. I go to the jail to meet him. This is only 18 months ago. Um, I um, explain it by saying, why would I want to meet this guy? Well, I want to meet the man I've been in a relationship with for my entire fucking life. Um, so in dealing with the rape in the book, right, and the theme of the second book is healing from PTSD, healing from post-traumatic stress disorder, um, inevitably I had to tell the story of how that childhood rape affected my intimate relationships, and because I happen to be heterosexual, my in intimate relationships were with men, are with men, yeah. One, um... You know that, that that meeting is 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 a powerful meeting to read about, but but more powerful for me. And I was stupidly reading it on a bus heading north. Was your meeting with his brother? That I say stupidly because I was sitting on the bus to Fongaray sobbing, oh. reading about that meeting. Oh. Uh, did did you? I mean, I, I sort of got the sense that your meeting with him wasn't what it you were hoping it could be, but perhaps the meeting with the brother was? Yes, his brother is just a beautiful man. His brother is very generous. So um, Laura, one of my best friends who was the star witness at the trial, she was attacked by the paper bag rapist when she was eight years old. Um, by the way, whenever I say the paper bag rapist in Canada, like he is very, it's like saying the boogeyman, right? So people kind of often go, you mean he existed? I thought he was a myth. <laughs> um, but anyway, so Laura uh, works, in, um, works with the police, uh, preparing the police to deal with rape victims. She's always done that. So she's very much in touch with the restorative justice people. And it was through this uh, restorative justice organization that she brokered the first meeting between her, Allison, another one of the victims who's a very close friend, and I, and his brother who was very willing to meet with us and answer any questions we might have. And so he was very, very, very generous and met with us for hours and answered extremely personal questions about their childhood and their family. Um, he's very sweet. I had the book launch in Vancouver. I, I've lost track of time. I think it was about 10 days ago, and he came out to the book launch. Uh, along with Rick, who's also a very close friend. He was, he's the detective who caught the paper bag rapist. Um, and uh, it was great to introduce Mark, the, the rapist brother, publicly um, because he has lived with a lot of shame for his entire life. And I think it was a, a, an honor for him to be at the book launch and to have me dedicate that launch to him and um, praise his generosity in front of a huge crowd of people. Yeah. yeah it's a, um, one of the... <laughs> Your acts of generosity in the book, I think, is 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 sharing the story, which which I think potentially helps you come to terms with it. It's not just your story. This is a, a sort of a, a big event, and and you and and I so really want to to drive home to to people here that that the the book isn't doesn't doesn't sort of head down into this well and and keep us there. It it. it uses humor to reflect on it. It's a, you know, it's a really beautiful book. And even when you're up there at one of the parole hearings, you end up 
throwing us a, a funny story. You know, and you talked about the paper bag man being the boogeyman. Can you know? Can you tell us the story about the dinner after one of the parole hearings? The dinner. You heard a call from an alley. Oh God. Okay. <laughs> So, yes, uh, uh, first of all, just in terms of the, what you first said, um, ever since the book came out, which was only a month ago, I have had quite a few um, victims of the paperback rapist come forward via email um, telling me that they want to meet. I mean, there's just, it, it, we've met so many, right? There's just so many victims. So it's been great that way. Um, and there were eight in the trial, is that right? Uh, so in the trial, so in, in my case, I never went to trial because uh, the, I got a, the rape kit that I got done after I was raped was never passed on to the police. Um, but there were 18 charges and 14 convictions. Yeah, so there were 14 victims who, who 14. got convicted convictions. And they were the ones that were at the beginning of his reign of terror, before he had um, refined his modus operandi, he would let the victims see his face. So these 14 were from the beginning, including Laura, who was a star witness, because they could point at him in the court and say, that's him right there. Um, but anyway, so a bunch of us victims are, are close friends, and we have these dinners. And one time we're having a dinner, and you know we're chatting away. And um, all of a sudden, and we're on this back terrace of this restaurant on Commercial Drive on the east side of Vancouver, and we hear a young girl scream out rape right underneath the terrace. So me and Laura look at each other, <laughs> and Laura goes, I'm going after the rapist. <laughs> and I say, well, I'll go after the victim. So I go running down the alley after the victim. She goes running, is this the story you wanted me to tell? Oh, okay. I know, there's just so many. Okay, and then, uh, and then she ran after the rapist, or the, the would-be rapist, who she did catch. And uh, meanwhile, the other ones are calling the police. You know, the cops arrive. We've got the would-be rapist. I've got the victim, but the victim was a drug addict who lived on the streets, teenage girl who was too afraid to go to the cops because of her drug use. She thought she'd get in trouble, so she just took off. And then when we told the cops who we were, because they were like, okay, what were you ladies doing? And we're like, well, we just came back from this parole hearing because we're all victims of the paper bag rapist. <laughs> uh, they thought we were joking. And one of the cops was so young, he thought, Oh, he, he's, he actually did say to us, you mean the boogeyman? We're like, no, it's the paper bag rapist. And, and he's like, yeah, the boogeyman. No, you idiot, he's real. He is? Yes, like we're the victims. Oh my God. Anyway, that's that story. Yeah. I, I, I realize we wanted to throw open to questions from oh, the yes. floor yet, but, mm -hmm. but soon, but I, we haven't talked about the title. Oh, yes. Can, can, yeah, you, can yeah. you quickly explain the title? And then I've got one last question. Then oh, we're okay. going to go to the floor. Yeah, so it's, so it's called Mexican Hooker Number One. I had to fight very hard for that title. My publishers did not want me to use that title <laughs> at all. I had to threaten them. Um, and I like the title for many reasons. Well, first of all, I come by it honestly because I did play a role called Mexican Hooker Number One, uh, in which I had to like, just get on my knees and pretend to suck off this guy. And um, then also I was a phone sex operator after theater school. And what else? <laughs> oh, the rapist called me a hooker over and over again when, it, when I was being raped. So for those three reasons, I think it's funny. I think it points to the humor in the book. And it also has an undertone of outrage uh, about one of the other threads in the book, which is the sexism and racism of the film 
TV and theater industry. Yeah. Yeah, and that was that was the context of, of me asking the question. Really, is within that, as someone coming in as an outsider to that Canadian theater environment, you really had to to not just fight yourself to find a way to work within it. You you had to fight to find a place for yourself. And and one of the lovely passages of the book is you heading. Um, to the reservation to do that. The workshop that was called... Oh, Theatre of the Oppressed? Theatre of the Oppressed, mm -hmm. yeah. I, I just, I wonder if, if we could just finish by you telling us the, the place you think theatre has for us as a society and the value it can have, given that you've chosen to dedicate yourself to that professionally. Yeah. And have now written 27 or 28... What's that? Play, you've now, you know, up to 27 or 28 plays since we yes, started right. the session. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it's true. <laughs> uh, well, certainly for me, uh, I know my role in the Canadian theatre scene, which is that I am a woman of colour in the Canadian theatre scene and that that in itself is revolutionary. Why do I say that? The Cana Canadian Actors' Equity Association, our union, just one year ago conducted a census of its membership in which the results were absolutely staggering. Uh, the results, as we speak, say the following. That of every person we see on stage in Canada, only 3.7% are women of color. And of that 3.7%, almost none are in lead roles. This is in a country where the urban centers are 50% of non-European descent. And our theaters are not reflecting that by any stretch of the imagination. So that's just, we're talking about actors. We're not even talking about content. So I knew when I was in theater school that uh, my role in the Canadian theater scene would be to write plays about my community, the Chilean community in exile, and to write plays basically about poor brown people, which make up a lot of the, of the population of, the, of Canada's urban centers and who are completely invisible and completely silenced by the mainstream and certainly by the theater. So that continues to be my role. And um, it's a very, very difficult role. Like it, it has a huge responsibility, but it's okay because I was raised by parents who drilled into my head, thankfully, that any skill set you have, you use for the community, never for yourself. So um, I'm fine. Um, writing plays about poor brown people in Canada. <laughs> well, I'd like to thank you, you all, for joining us here today, and particularly Carmen yes, for being you. here and for your wonderful books. Our 2016 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.